Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, July 6th, 2021 episode of the musical universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new, if you've never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is Vancouver, British Columbia born, Brooklyn, New York based composer, arranger, and big band leader, Darcy James Argue. Argue has toured nationally and internationally with his 18-piece ensemble, Secret Society, garnering countless awards and nominations and reimagining what a 21st century big band can sound like. It's maximalist music of impressive complexity and immense entertainment value in your face and then in your head, writes Richard Gare in The Village Voice. Argue made his mark with his critically acclaimed 2009 debut, Infernal Machines. 2013 saw the release of Brooklyn Babylon, which, like Infernal Machines before it, earned the group nominations for both Grammy and Juno Awards. His most recent recording, Real Enemies, released in the fall of 2016, earned a third consecutive Grammy nomination and has been praised as wildly discursive, twitchily elusive, a work of furious ambition, deeply in tune with our present moment. By the New York Times, Nate Shinnan. Proclaimed a mind-blowing example of truly great, era-defining jazz composition, and a contender for Album of the Year by London Jazz News, John L. Waters, Real Enemies is a 13-chapter exploration of America's fascination with conspiracy theories and the politics of paranoia. The album grew out of a multimedia work 
argue co-created with writer-director Isaac Butler and filmmaker Peter Negrini for the 2015 Brooklyn Academy of Music Next Wave Festival in a uniquely immersive experience that stereophiles Fred Kaplan called a remarkable work, maybe an oddball masterpiece, riveting, head spinning, at once spooky and witty, obtrusively complex, and foot-tappingly propulsive. The multimedia performance was next staged at the 2016 Holland Festival, a, pro a production of Jazz News, Renus van der Heiden, praised as a visual and auditive spectacle without precedent, which overwhelms, dwarfs, and makes you aware that innovation in music theater is still possible. Argue recently collaborated with Grammy-winning vocalist Cecile McLaurin-Savant, arranging, orchestrating, and conducting her macabre, majestically relevant original song cycle, Ogresse, which premiered in September 2018 to a standing room only crowd at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Jazz Times' Matthew Castle calls Ogresse a daring and genre-defined departure a grand synthesis of jazz, musical theater, mythology, visual art, cooking, fashion, rate, acting, race, and sexuality. Secret Society maintains a busy touring schedule with European, Canadian, and South American tours, global festival performances, and four appearances at the Newport Jazz Festival. Secret Society's performances have been celebrated for their slashing fury and awesome full ensemble precision, brilliant soundscapes, and gorgeous musical details, maneuvers, and transformations. Their London Jazz Festival debut was declared a contender for Gig of the Year by The Guardian. In addition to his work with Secret Society, Argue has toured Australia and New Zealand, leading the Jazz Groove Mothership Orchestra and was featured in the Orchestra Jazz de Mazzanios, inaugural International Jazz Composers Forum. He has led performance of his, performances of his music by the WDR Big Band, the Danish Radio Big Band, the Frankfurt Radio Big Band, and the Cologne Contemporary Jazz Orchestra, the Big Band Palacio de Arts, and the West Point Jazz Nights. Argue has composed works for chamber duo and string quartet, art songs for Newspeak, and created arrangements for the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. He has conducted residencies and workshops at the University of North Texas, McGill University, the Royal Conservatory of the Hague, Cornish College, Western Connecticut State University, and with the Western Australian Jazz Youth Orchestra, among others. In 2012, he was composer in residence for Missouri State University's annual composition festival. In 2015, 
Argue was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in Music Composition and a Doris Duke Artist Award. He has received commissions from the Frome Music Foundation, the Jazz Gallery, the Manhattan New Music Project, the Jerome Foundation, and the BAM, as well as ensembles including the Danish Radio Big Band, the Hard Rubber Orchestra, the West Point Jazz Nights, and the Orchestra Jazz de Mazzonios. He is the recipient of grants and fellowships from the New York Foundation for the Arts, New Music USA, the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, Composers Now, the Mid-Atlantic Arts Foundation, the Canada Council for the Arts, and the McDowell Colony. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Darcy James Argue. Hello, Darcy. Hello, Craig. It's really great to have the opportunity to talk with you. Uh, I've been looking forward very much to having you on my show, uh, knowing uh, about your background and experience as a composer and arranger. And uh, my first question for you then is to, I want to know is as a composer and arranger, who inspired you? What turned the light on for you to become a composer in the big band idiom? Well, it was a process. Uh, I don't think there are very many kids who, uh, you know, at the age of four know exactly what they want to do in life. Um, but it, it was, uh, it was always something that I was interested in. Um, as a young piano student, I was, I was interested in big orchestrations. I had, um, the opportunity uh, as uh, as a young boy to actually see uh, uh, Henry Mancini come and conduct the Vancouver Pops, which was great. My uh, grandfather took me to that and made me uh, a recording of uh, some of the great uh, Mancini hits from back in the day. Um, and uh, as uh, a junior in high school, uh, back in, in my trumpet playing days, uh, we played a simplified version of this piece by Thad Jones called Us. Uh, and oh, yeah. it really struck me. Our band director, who was a great band director in North Vancouver, played the original Thad Jones Mel Lewis recording of it. And that uh, really hit me. And it was like, wow, what is that? I want to I hear more of that. And then I, I realized, actually, and my, my parents are not musicians and did not have a, a big record collection in fact we didn't have a record player at all we just had a cassette player uh but one of the cassettes that they had was first time the count meets the duke and i have no idea how they had this whether it was a gift or something but it was it was in the collection and i i remember there was a, a ballad by thad jones on that recording called to you written for the combined forces of the uh, duke ellington orchestra and the count basie band and, and so Thad really made a, a big impression on me and, and I sought out um, all of his music that I could find. It was hard to, to find um, back in, in those days. And then uh, sometimes things, you know, like recordings just get issued at the right time in your life. So when I started college uh, at McGill University as a jazz pianist, 
the mosaic box set of the first five Thad and Mel records, uh, the solid state recordings that came out. And that was the first time that those recordings were available on CD and, and with great, very detailed liner notes about everything. And I really did a, a deep dive into, into all of that stuff. And, um, that's where I really started to discover Bob Brookmeyer's writing because Bob was also writing a lot of music for the Thad and, and Mel band classic charts like ABC Blues and his mm -hmm. arrangement of St. Louis Blues. Um, and, you know, such a, a distinct voice from Thad Jones, too. It was one of these things of you sort of listening to the box set and hearing all of this incredible Thad music. And then you hear, you know, the introduction to ABC Blues. It's like, oh, what is what is that? That is that's different. Um, and uh, sort of fast forward to the late 1999, early 2000. Um, I ended up after graduating from McGill University, I was I was teaching a jazz arranging class there my first year out. And of course, we were looking at the music of Bob Brookmeyer in that arranging class. And you know, I had a few questions and I noticed that uh, uh, kind of unusually for the time now we we take it for granted that we can just you know reach out to our heroes on social media but uh, at the time bob had a website with his email address on it and he was one of the very few major jazz musicians who was so easy to contact and so i i just wrote to him at the email address on his website and said you know hey bob you know i you know big fan of your music really admire everything that you do i'm teaching some of your scores uh, would you mind if I ask you a couple of quick questions about this and this? Uh, so one thing led to another. We started corresponding and then um, uh, I, Bob invited me to send him some of my music and then invited me to study with him at New England Conservatory, uh, which is where I did my master's. And that was really that was the point in my life where my priorities shifted from being primarily a, a jazz piano player who was interested in composition and doing a lot of uh, you know arranging and and composition um, on the side to really making writing for big band the the focus of what I was doing um, and that that shift really happened at New England Conservatory you know because I was studying with Bob but also because there was a, a group there the NEC Jazz Composers Orchestra which was a, a student big band that performed exclusively student compositions. Um, well, we we also did some of Bob's music, but almost exclusively student compositions. And uh, I realized that that was that was an opportunity that that I was never going to have again to have weekly access to a big band. You know, one of the very frustrating things about writing large ensemble music is that it is a process of delayed gratification. You know, you uh, you write something and you might spend three or four months writing it. And then at the end of those three or four months, you get to hear it. But at NEC, as a master's student, I could write something on Tuesday and hear it on Wednesday. Right. Um, and so that that was really, uh, really exciting and, and really, I think, feel like fundamental to my development as, as a composer. And, you know, having this opportunity, I realized I would be I would be foolish not to take advantage of it. So I did. And then, you know, um, I, I ended up developing a pretty serious big band habit. Wow. You know, it's interesting hearing about that, Darcy. You and I have a lot more in common than you might think. Uh, seriously, first of all, uh, I'm a trumpet player. So mm -hmm. I knew there's a reason I liked you right from the start, right? Being a trumpet player. The other thing is we're both from the same or very similar or close to the same part of the continent. 
you being from Vancouver, I'm from Boise, Idaho. There you go. So I'm a Pacific Northwester and you're a Pacific Southwesterner <laughs> from a Canadian perspective. And that's, uh, that's kind of cool. And the other thing is I have loved Thad Jones, Mel Lewis's music, the Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, big band music. And I think uh, in my formative years, when I got turned on, well, my initial turn on to jazz and big band was Stan Kenton. Mm -hmm. And it's because I, 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 I was weird. I loved dissonance. Mm -hmm. I loved those incredible crashing dissonances and the, you know, that would then morph into these incredibly, you know, large kind of, uh, uh, explosive sounds. I mean, to me, that was the turn on for, for big band. And I have a quick Henry Mancini story for you that I have my experience. Great. I was in LA in, uh, oh, I'm going to say it was probably 1978. And uh, actually I was uh, in uh, Costa Mesa, just south of LA. We were at the Orange Coast Jazz Festival with uh, big band, my big band from uh, college that I played in. And so uh, one night we decided to go on up to Dante's Inferno. It's in uh, LA in South Hollywood. And uh, because Super Sax was playing and we wanted to hear Super Sax. And so we're sitting and, and in Dante's, they had like those old style vinyl booths that were kind of semi-circles. And we were sitting at one and, and just really listening. And the band was uh, Med Flory was kind of taking, you know, giving the guys a, a break with their chops. He says, we'd like to introduce a few of our friends that are here with us tonight. And, and please say hello to Mr. Henry Mancini. And he was sitting just opposite of me in the booth next to us. Wow. <laughs> I was like, I was Great. in such awe. I don't even yeah. think I had the courage to stand up, turn to my right and offer to shake hands with him. <laughs> and what, the other thing that was a kick is sitting at the same table with Henry Mancini was Bill Holman. Right. And uh, so that was kind of one of those uh, incredible experiences. But I, uh, I also would tell you, I, you know, I, I remember the very first time ever hearing of the Thad Jones, Mel Lewis big band. Seems to me it was on a PBS public television broadcast. Maybe it was from the Village Vanguard, but I'm not sure. And I was going, wow, this is a really different kind of group. I mean, it's got all that complexity of harmonies, but it's still got that real buoyant swing. Right. And, and when I used to teach about Thad Jones, when I taught jazz history, because I did that as well as music appreciate, I used to say that Thad Jones and his music was, was a nice um, uh, combination. What you got with Thad Jones was a little bit of Basie and a little bit of Ellington mixed together, because he wrote those complex parts uh, and inner parts, because he was writing for some of the best musicians in New York. And yet it still had that nice buoyant uh, swing feel all the way through. So I, I'm right there with you. I love that. Uh, uh, I love that that sound. Well, tell us yeah, a bit. Jim McNeely oh. used to, to say that uh, Thad took the, the jazz of, you know, really you know, 1955 to 1965, that generation, yes. and big bandized it. And, and he was really the first major jazz composer to, to absorb all of that language, including, you know, the modal language and even some of the, the new thing in the free jazz that was going on, and to incorporate it into his writing and into the way the band was playing. And, you know, with Richard Davis and, and Mel Lewis, uh, the bassist and drummer, 
uh, as a rhythm section, they were just such an incredibly versatile rhythm section. You can imagine yeah. them playing behind John Coltrane or Eric Dolphy or people of that ilk in a way that that wouldn't make sense for many other big band rhythm sections of the era. So I think that that is part of what's so exciting about about the Thad Jones Mel Lewis band is, you know, if you're listening to uh, uh, you know, Blue Note records from that era, and you're listening to to Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter and Sam Rivers and uh, uh, Andrew Hill and and just all of those people. Uh, the music of the Thad Jones Mel Lewis band makes a certain it fits into that constellation uh, of music and just feels you know of its time certainly, but like really in a in a very fresh and contemporary way. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I think, you know, what brought just came right to my mind as you were talking was Central Park North, mm -hmm. which has that kind of proto funk, right, kind of midsection and, and, uh, and of course, uh, you know, it, it, when you listen to any of Thad Jones small group stuff, uh, he, he definitely embodies that uh, late 50s, early 60s, uh, hard bop, soul jazz, whatever whatever label you want to attach to it that uh, you find a lot on Blue Note. So yeah, I agree with you 100%. Uh, well, uh, Darcy, tell us a bit about your creative process. What inspires you when you write? Well, you know, uh, as uh, Ellington once said, I don't need inspiration, I need a deadline. And uh, that is very often the case uh, I have, um, I'm fortunate enough to be in a, a position where I, I have uh, people asking me to write various things, um, arrangements um, or commissions, uh, or there are projects that I might undertake with Secret Society, uh, larger kind of uh, very often multimedia oriented projects, uh, for instance, Brooklyn Babylon and mm -hmm. Real Enemies, our last two recordings on New Amsterdam both emerge from big multimedia projects and so in, in all of those cases it it was really less about sort of inspiration coming down from the heavens and more about well what does this project particularly need mm -hmm. um, whether it's a commission for someone else and uh, for instance um, I, I just recently wrote uh, my first <laughs> This is going to sound kind of crazy. My first song, uh, it was a collaboration with the uh, writer and lyricist David Haydu, who you might, uh, your listeners might know from the um, biography of Billy Strayhorn, Lush Life, the wonderful uh, biography that he wrote. Um, David wrote a series of, of lyrics about this one particular address in Manhattan and contacted a range of composers, including um, Rini Rosnes, who graduated from my high school at North Vancouver, uh, to compose uh, original work for um, uh, uh, based on David's lyrics, original songs based on, on David's lyrics. And so he's got a, a multi-composer song cycle. And so in, in that case, it's really me looking at, at the lyrics that David has given me and trying to mm -hmm. um, figure out from there what the music needs to be true to these words that, that I'm, I'm trying and, and to the concept of the, uh, of the cycle as a whole of this one address in New York that went through all of these different incarnations and the the piece that I worked on 
uh, is actually about the time that this address was a men's consignment fashion store. And so David has all of these great Italian brand names in the lyrics of, uh, you know, Versace and Vanetti and all of those. It was really fun to, to work with. Mm -hmm. um, and so it might be a situation like that. It might be a situation where uh, my collaboration with, uh, speaking of another great singer, Cecile McLaurin Salvant, uh, where she approached me to orchestrate her song cycle, Ogress. And for that, uh, Cecile wrote um, all of the music and all of the lyrics, so the songs mm -hmm. were there, but the orchestration, the arrangement of it, really depended on understanding what the song cycle as a whole needed and how to advance, because it's a narrative song cycle, there's a drama to it of how to move the narrative forward musically with the orchestrations and finding things to to tie the various songs together. Um, there was a, uh, there's a narrative element, there's a narrator in the song cycle. The narrator is always um, accompanied by banjo and always in C, because it's tenor banjo in C. So there's a, a sort of a recurring theme that that comes back uh, throughout the song cycle, part of the connective tissue. And it's finding those elements and and figuring out how to bring them to life in um, the the best possible way uh, for, uh, for, for the demand of the music. And that's true even if I'm writing for myself, uh, if I'm trying to compose, if I have a commission from um, the Hard Rubber Orchestra in Vancouver or from the WDR Big Band or, or whoever is asking me to write something, from the moment I have the 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 DNA of the piece, the initial idea, um, whether it might be a, a, a rhythm or a little melodic idea or a particular harmonic idea or a you know a pitch class cell or a twelve tone row or whatever whatever it is, and working with that uh, in what Bob Brookmar used to call pre-compositional work of kind of exploring the possibilities as soon as the piece begins to develop a bit of a character in my mind, then I really my job as a composer is to try to figure out what that character needs and to be true to that character throughout the compositional process and figure out, all right, well, how do I, how do I bring that character to life in a way that is going to be fun and connect with uh, the audience and connect with the listener in uh, in the best possible way. And I, I think about that a lot. You know, some composers, they're, they're very much about, uh, you know, I write for me, I, I only write what's in my head and uh, I'm not concerned about how anyone else listening to it perceives it. Right. And, you know, uh, from my perspective, it's like, well, then why are you releasing it? <laughs> you know, if you're only writing well, for yourself, why does anyone else need to, to hear it? You know, so I'm I'm concerned about communication and I'm concerned, you know, like if you're a, a writer and you're a persuasive writer, you are concerned about how persuasive your argument is to your audience. And, you know, if you're um, a, a director, you want to make sure that the choices that your actors are making on stage are choices that are going to communicate your vision of of the play to the audience and mm -hmm. that you know actors might be making choices that they're not aware of that are impeding what they are trying to do 
And so, you know, as, as a composer and as a, uh, an ensemble director, uh, a lot of what I do is just try to take a step back and, and listen, try to listen with fresh ears and try to listen from the perspective of someone encountering the music for the first time and to make sure that the choices that I'm making are, are the ones that are going to communicate whatever I'm trying to communicate in the cleanest, clearest, and, uh, you know, most effective possible way, which, you know, doesn't mean, you know, pandering or dumbing down your music or anything of that nature. I, you know, you, you have to be true to yourself and true to what the music wants to be, but there are many different ways of communicating the same idea. And I'm always interested in trying to communicate it uh, in a way that is going to, to be, um, that that is just going to land. That is going is going to be going to be received by the ideal audience in the best possible way. So, would it be accurate? As I listen to you speak, would it be accurate for me to uh, reinterpret what you're saying? Is that you mull over a particular concept? Uh, that you've been presented with either with lyrics or the concept of a particular composition and you let that rest. And then what comes out of you is expressing that concept vis-a-vis -vis music. In other words, expressing it in a musical way. I, and I guess what I'm thinking before you answer, I was going to suggest Richard Strauss once said that he could write and orchestrate music that would represent a pencil crawling across the tabletop. Sure. Uh, whatever that would sound like. Now, I'm mm -hmm. sure that that particular sound would have been unique to Strauss. But nonetheless, in his mind, he was thinking in terms of conceptualizing something that doesn't exist in reality because pencils don't crawl, but that he could then have that concept manifest itself in music. Is that anywhere near kind of your your similar thinking or similar to your thinking, I mean to say? Well, so the the process for me is the, the process that uh, this is something that I really got from from Bob Brookmeyer, who tried to impart this uh, into his students, which is that you know, Bob would make uh, a, a distinction between a a songwriter and a composer. Okay. And well, I wouldn't necessarily make that distinction in that yes. way. I sort of feel like anyone who uh, you know anyone who creates music, original music, is a composer. I think thinking about those processes uh, as separate processes can be helpful. Of the 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 process of writing something. Um, that is short and maybe comes from a, a more naive or less reflective place can be a great process. And we've all had the mm -hmm. uh, experience of, you know, just you, you get an idea for a tune and it doesn't have to be very complicated. You've got something very simple and straightforward for an A section, you add a bridge and you're done, right? Right. That process is is one way to write and it is a way to write that is i think probably familiar to a lot of jazz musicians of coming up with something that you can use as, as a springboard for improvisation if you're going to write something longer uh then you need more scaffolding you know if right. you're trying to trying to build something that is you know if you're trying to to build a skyscraper and not a yurt then you need blueprints 
right you know you need you need to to spend a little bit more time thinking about how the 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 bones of this building are going to support the weight sure that it needs sure to sure well i mean and, I, I oh i'm sorry i interrupted you go ahead sure so just continuing with with the idea of of pre-compositional work a lot of it is from whatever the initial spark of inspiration is and and you know these these two things these processes aren't necessarily mutually exclusive you might have sort of you settle on uh, a really great melodic idea or kind of a or just a really great vamp or uh, a really great kind of um, uh, interesting chord voicing or vertical sonority or, or whatever whatever it happens to be that it forms the 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 core dna of what the piece is going to be mm -hmm. Then it's a matter of through that pre-compositional work, taking that that you know that basic genetic material and and really trying to look at all of the possible mutations and all of the ways that it can be transformed and um, uh, combined with other material and turned upside down and you know, turned inside out and all of those different things and you come up with you know. Uh, uh, pages and pages and pages of things that you can do that are related to that initial idea, mm -hmm. ways that 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 initial spark can be transformed and, and hopefully audibly related to where you started. And that is what pre-compositional work gets you is that that focus and, and listeners mm -hmm. can absolutely feel when that focus is there and when it's not you know they can tell when you're spinning your wheels and you're you're putting in something whether in a composition or an arrangement where you're 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 just moving on to the next thing and you're not going back to your source material to really look at well what can i do to develop this i mean you look at uh something like ellington's concerto for cootie yeah. which is just a masterpiece of short form development, you know, in three and a half minutes, it goes to so many different places, but absolutely everything in the chart is related to that initial sort of ba da ba do ba da ba da. Mm -hmm. it, it's all there. It's all from that initial DNA, and and just every gesture is developed, and and it feels organic, and it feels like you've been on a journey, and you you know, Ellington is such a master that you know he hides his work. But you would feel if that work wasn't there, the thing that makes Concerto for Cootie so satisfying as a listener is that focus, um, mm -hmm. is the fact that everything connects and everything relates. And you might not consciously be aware of that as just a layperson. You just be like, wow, man, Cootie Williams sounds so great on this. Mm -hmm. And what a wonderful orchestration and the trombones, they sound like a choir and all of those things. But it's that it works almost on a subliminal level of, of just the idea of that kind of focus and development and composerly perspective on it. That, that is really what keeps people going back and back to that music um, generation after generation. No, you're spot on. I used to run into a, a similar situation like when I was teaching, you know, these gen ed uh, music courses to non-musicians and I'd say well what do you like about that piece and a student would tell me and I say okay now let's look at maybe why 
And then I would yeah. talk about the structure and the interconnectivity and the, the, uh, the, the work of the composer's cre creativity and intellectual abilities in, you know, how this relates to this relates to this and then makes it a unified whole and it all, you know, interconnects so that, you know, you have this satisfying listening experience. I mean, you know, the initial response might be, well, you know, it makes my toe tap and it's got a cute tune and I like it, you know, but I, but I, but I, you try to peel back the onion skin a little bit and get down to the real nitty gritty of why that piece of music works. The other thing I would tell you is uh, that is so <laughs> remarkable similarities. My wife, is a PhD music theorist. And her dissertation was on Arnold Schoenberg's early songs. Actually, I think is some of his earliest songs uh, from his Damelyar, where he wrote songs based on the, the poetry of Richard Damel. And mm -hmm. it's pre-12-tone, uh, just beginning to verge towards a tonality. Uh, but he's, he's really, you know, but the way that she picks apart those very simple, what the, on the outside appear to be very simple songs fascinates me. Uh, that's why I love being married to her because she knows more about music theory than I do. And she has a much better ear and she's, you know, cause she's taught ear training and, and theory and so forth. So those kinds of things are, are really excellent. The other thing, a great comment that you made that I, I wholeheartedly support is that songwriters are composers. And I, I will go give a great example. Let's look at the song cycles of Rick, of, uh, uh, Franz Schubert or uh, 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 Richard Schumann. You know, you take Winteries or Dichterliebe, and they're a sets of songs, but they have that unifying uh, skeletal structure in that the, the, the text, the poems are all drawn from similar subjects, and the music enhances that, that uh, beauty and that uh, uh, meaning of, of, of that poetry. So I, I think that's wonderful that you're, you're uh, uh, looking at songwriting from that standpoint. The other th would be when you said that you write music the way you hear it or for yourself, that's right in the same league with just about any 19th century romanticist. So, so there you have it, you know, I mean, that's very different from the classicists of the, you know, 18th century who were trying to write more universally and a more kind of thing. And we, we get more to those romantics in the 19th and it's all about personal expression. And I don't think there's a darn thing wrong with it because I, there's going to be somebody who's going to relate to what you're expressing and be moved by it and and find something there so i i i applaud your your uh, your efforts uh, in that direction to not pander to uh, a lower comedy denominator taste um, well i just you know from from my perspective i don't think um that right being true to myself and writing in my own voice and I don't think that's mutually exclusive with trying to be generous and okay. trying to communicate to to the listener. You know, there are a lot of things that 
as composers, it is very easy to get over familiar with your materials. Um, you know, we, especially if you're writing for, for big band, you know, you might be spending uh, 24 hours to write a minute of music, right? Yeah. And so one of the great lessons from from studying with Bob Brookmeyers, you know, he would go through your scores and he would he would put a fermata on on certain things. And that didn't mean a, a literal fermata. He was not saying, you know, you should stop the tempo at this point and hold on this chord. What he meant was I need more of that or I need more time between these things. And so, you know, mm. I would ask you like, well, what happened to that idea? I said, well, Bob, I, I was I was done with that idea. I stated it, I, you know, developed it a little bit, and then I moved on, and Bob would be like, I wasn't done with it. Mm. And he would often talk about transitions, too, and, and you know, after a, a, a big, very dense, possibly dissonant shout chorus, or something of that nature, you need a palate cleanser, you know, mm. you would talk about, you know, just a little taste of sorbet, before the next big aggregation happens. And so uh, very often he would counsel you towards patience and he would counsel you towards taking your time and making sure that when you introduce an idea that it's introduced in a way that is clear and, and perceptible. Um, Jim McNeely talks about this too. He talks about sort of ideas or thematic ideas as, as characters in a play. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you just have all of the characters in the play enter the stage at the same time and all start talking at the same time, that is not going to be a really great way. You know, that shouldn't be your go-to. Like maybe that's a special effect that you want for a particular moment. But if you're going to go in that direction, right, it has to be deliberate and you have to know what kind of effect that you're having and 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 in some way like reach to the audience and check in with them and make sure that, that they understand why this is happening. You know, the the writer David Foster Wallace talks about this as well. And you know, um, the, the novel Infinite Jest, uh, I read that when it came out, it made a really big impact on me. And, um, you know, it's a big, long, dense, complicated book with a ton of endnotes and some very uh, dense language and some disorienting structural things. There's a lot going on mm -hmm. and it can be very difficult to follow. But Wallace is funny. <laughs> And that goes a long way. And there are moments in the book where you can feel him as a writer sort of checking in with you and be like, are you still still with me here? Like, I promise <laughs> this is going to this is going to pay off in about 300 pages. Yeah, but I'm going to give you just a few things here and there to make sure that you're still on board so that, you know, if you never make it to page 300, then what's what was the point of all of this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, as as a composer, you know, if you're writing something, you know, like Real Enemies is 80 minutes of 12 tone music, right? Like I need to check in with the audience periodically throughout that piece to make sure that they're still with me so that at the end of, you know, 70 minutes of this that they haven't gotten up and left. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, like I don't consider that, I don't consider that a bad thing. There's a weird anxiety 
I feel like a lot of composers have about even admitting that they care what anyone else thinks about their music. But if you don't care what anyone else thinks about your music, why are you releasing it? Like, why mm -hmm. go to all the trouble of putting all of those musicians together and rehearsing it and getting it to a point where you can take it out and perform it in public if you don't care what anyone thinks? So for me, it's, it's always about, you know, like it's not about diluting your ideas, but it is about refining them and distilling them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's sort of the opposite of, of that, of, of like just figuring out how how to in real time teach the audience to listen to your music and mm -hmm. that involves consideration about like well what would it be like to listen to this for the first time uh, again bob would always talk about sort of putting your ear on the table or like listening to your music as if you know some other jerk had written it okay. so you if you're encountering it for the first time, a lot of this, a lot of the ideas that you have spent, you know, days crafting and creating and all of these things, you know, they might go by in an instant. And if you're encountering it for the first time and you can really kind of imaginatively put yourself in that perspective, you might be like, I didn't retain any of that because it all just went by so quickly and there were there were like all of these you know dense chords in the brass and also dense chords in the saxophones and they all had different notes and they were rhythmically piling up on top of each other and there was no clarity to any of it and so you know then it's time to go back and revise maybe take some things out um very often we have a tendency to overwrite as composers and to underestimate underestimate excuse me the the power of simplicity the power of you know you have if you're writing for a big band uh 13 14 horns you don't have to have them all playing at the same time right you don't have to harmonize everything like maybe just two or three horns in unison um a lot of these these things are um they may seem obvious in in retrospect but like as a composer you know, you, you have to put yourself imaginatively in the perspective of like, what if a student came to me with this chart? Like, what advice would I offer them? You know, um, and very often the advice that I end up offering many of my students is, all right, okay, you got some great stuff here. Let's curate, let's prune some things. Let's take this out, let's add a little bit more space here. Let's, you know, when you, and when you do go big, that can go longer. Like just make that shout chorus bigger and, more extended and and you know more of that material but less of all of that extraneous stuff leading up to that you know like mm -hmm. when you're going big go it all the way and then when you're not going big let's streamline right and so that is a process that i, I apply um, to my teaching but also very much to my own music you know you're constantly trying to teach yourself to be a better composer mm -hmm. and so that involves trying to listen with a certain amount of objectivity Sure, sure. No, I think that's that's excellent advice that you've just provided any young uh, aspiring composer ranger who's listening. Uh, that's uh, excellent uh, advice. Uh, when I would teach jazz improvisation, I would tell students the same thing. Don't play all of your ideas in the first eight bars because then you have nothing left to say. Hold back, hold back, start simple. 
build, build, you know, that kind of thing, similar idea. Well, you know, when I taught jazz history and appreciation at the University of Wisconsin, uh, Waukesha, I would teach Duke Ellington with a reminder to my students that Ellington studied to be a painter before he dove seriously into music. And that in my opinion, my humble opinion, he painted on a canvas of silence with colors of sound. He still was an artist, but he was working in sound instead of with, with, uh, with paint. And it, I think we can agree that Duke Ellington expanded the color palette of the big band with, for example, for his time, unusual combinations of instruments, uh, muted and open brass simultaneously, and certainly voicings that he used in his music. Would you talk about the big band as an ensemble for musical expression and the various approaches to the elements of music uh, and you as an arranger may take to create different colors and forms of musical expression? I mean, I think what you said is, is great. You no, know, Ellington is a, a, a master colorist. Uh, among all of the other amazing things that uh, that Ellington was, uh, uh, you know, a, a genius at uh, uh, as a colorist and just an inventor of of new sonorities and new timbres, uh, just un, unparalleled in, in in music history, really. Um, but that is what is exciting about working with big band and what it's really i think what keeps people uh, attracted to um this somewhat archaic form of of music technology you know uh we live in a world where you can sitting at your laptop um with a sampler and a software synthesizer and all of the the kind of electronic effects uh, at your disposal create all of these sounds really any sound that you can imagine you have you have the tools at your disposal just you know kind of sitting alone at your laptop to to create it but there is always going to be something really human about doing it in the analog world about having you know three people three different instruments play in their individual voices uh, and their own sounds and their own personalities and their own sort of life experiences coming through their instruments just playing a, a b-flat triad like the opening of mood indigo right it's just a <laughs> b-flat triad but it's the way it's voiced and and the personality of those players and just the the um the expression the humanity that, that comes through that that makes that come alive and and creates that feeling of of being some being a new color um, or being a, a you know a shade that you never saw used in that way exactly before it's you know like the pink sunglasses or whatever whatever you're sort of creating uh, with the instrumental combinations there's something there's something about doing it um, in you know with especially 
as we come out of the come, you know, hoping knock on wood into the post COVID era and uh, return to live music making of just being in a room with people and seeing them make those sounds in front of you uh, is there's something eternally magical about that. And the, the big band offers you just a, an exponential explosion of possibilities compared to a small group jazz for those kinds of colors and those kinds of combinations and even just personalities you've got all of those different characters in your big band and putting them together uh in different ways i'm still looking for uh, uh ways to to have people in secret society play melodies together that they've never played together mm -hmm. uh just to see what will happen you know so there there is something as i said like i think they're they're that is a big part of the appeal of the big band. That's why young composers are still coming back to it time and time again. And, and it's it's why certainly like why I developed that that big band habit is just being able to, as you said, take a, a more of a, a painterly approach or, or an architectural approach to writing music um, in a way that would feel maybe uh, would be less possible or maybe would feel a little mannered or stiff if you tried to do it with a smaller group. Oh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier to you that my, my initial introduction to jazz was the Stan Kenton Orchestra and uh, not the first concert that I ever attended of his group, but the uh, Oh, I've maybe a second or third. I happened to get a seat on the front row. And in the ballroom where this concert was presented, that meant I was practically sitting on Stan's lap as he sat at the piano. Well, the first tune they opened with, Stan stood in front of the band and all he said was the word Uno, which meant they went right into Malaguena. And to hear five trumpets blow your hair back, playing you know high E's and F's and G's and and uh, and that whole mixture, wonderful arranging that's there and so forth. I mean, I, I get I'm getting goosebumps now just talking about it. Let alone the impact that that live experience had on me when I was, oh, I'm, maybe I was in my first year of college or so. And I, I, like you, I'm so looking forward to getting back to making live music. I'm going tonight to my first rehearsal in uh, 18 months. Good and luck. I tell you, I'm like, I'm like a kid on Christmas morning. I can't mm -hmm. wait because I'm going to be back with guys that I haven't seen in over a year. It's, it's a 19 piece big band that I play in here locally. And uh, we've got a couple of guys on the band that write. And so we do have the opportunity to play, you know, fresh new uh, charts that they've, they've written as well as of course, whatever else that we pick up published and, and, and uh, uh, arrangements, but I am so looking forward to getting back to playing. Uh, and I, you know, and I think that we're actually on the cusp of something very good. And I like to remind people, and I've said this numerous times in my uh, 
podcast episodes, I like to make people remember that the Renaissance occurred after the end of the Hundred Years' War and the end of the Black Plague in Europe that wiped out a third of the population of Europe. And also after the end of World War I and the Spanish right. flu epidemic, what did we mm -hmm. have? We had the Roaring Twenties. And I'm hoping the rest of the 20s of the 2020s is going to be right. roaring in terms of music, all, all the arts and creativity and expressiveness and people getting together and enjoying live interactions of music. So, Indeed. Uh, you know, I became acquainted with you through G.A. Lee uh, because you produced her newest big band recording. I did. And, uh, and uh, I really enjoyed my conversation with G.A. And, uh, I'm very intrigued by her music and certainly your presence must have had some influence on the end result of her recording. What did you bring to the sound of her band and your own band, Secret Society, that is unique and different from other contemporary big bands? Well, um, you know, producing Jihei's record as a, as a producer, you know, I, I'm not one to go and try and interfere to rewrite her music in any way. That's that's not the gig, right? right. Uh, the job really is to um, offer some suggestions during rehearsal and to uh, be the time cop, to keep an eye on the clock and to say like, okay, we've got it. Let's move on to the next the next tune and uh, or we don't have it. Let's let's try, you know, this insert again. Try and get that. Um, any kind of big band recording is always a race against the clock. And um, as the conductor and composer, Jihei has enough to do. <laughs> and that that job of just you know conducting your music well um, in a recording session that's difficult enough. And so having someone else who is, again, you know, you're, uh, I'm uh, uh, ultimately an advocate for, for the listener sitting in the control booth being like, all right, we're going to need to take that again. Let's try these things a little bit differently. And, you know, um, or that was, that was great. And, you know, it's hard being in the room and having you know recorded my music many times being in the room at the podium you don't know you know you, you might think you know but but you don't because you're you're caught up in the moment you're caught up in conducting it yourself um you're caught up in in the the adrenaline of the recording session it is impossible to have any kind of sense of, of perspective about it you really do need a producer uh sitting in the control room score in front of me i i had um uh, uh, another incredible composer, uh, Migi Miyajima, who was my uh, assistant during the production process. And so, you know, we would be able to confer and have a little sort of sidebar with Migi about, okay, all right, blah, 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 blah. All right, so we thought that was a great take, but here are the things we're going to look for for the next one, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just a, another example of how the, the the romantic idea of of the composer as the ultimate arbiter of everything you know you need to collaborate sometimes you can't actually fill every role at every moment you you do need to distribute that to trusted advisors especially in a recording situation um 
so I have had the benefit uh, of, of having some really great colleagues produce my own recordings. Um, and I'm always really grateful for that outside perspective of people whose judgment I, I trust. I, uh, Alan Ferber, who produced um, the most recent recording, Real Enemies, uh, another incredible composer and oh, trombone yeah. player and brought really great insight. Sometimes you just need someone also to, to say something to the band to hear the same thing that you've been telling them, you know, for years and years and years, but they need to hear someone else say it. You know? Right. So collaboration is important. Uh, and, uh, you know, composers, we tend to spend a lot of time by ourselves, but a lot of time locked away in our little composer holes, even when there isn't a global pandemic going on. And, and so being able to bring in other voices uh, and other perspectives, I think is just, is very valuable. And the recording, process is is part of that so I've, I've been fortunate that i've i've um had a lot of composers invite me to produce recently and it's something that i really i, I really enjoy doing and um, i'm always very grateful when there's a, a great producer uh, on the other end of the glass for the ogress recording that we did with cecile mclaurin salva i had um miho hazama uh the current director new director of the danish radio big band she was our producer it was so incredibly helpful and thorough and um just having having her perspective made it such uh, a more effective recording than if i had tried to somehow wear all the hats myself so that's mm -hmm. really the the perspective i try to to bring as a producer is, is to give that um objective set of ears and to give the the sort of a, a perspective that isn't uh, warped by being in the middle of the maelstrom mm -hmm. out there, kind of conduct the band and answer all of the questions and and deal with all of the personalities that are involved in a in a big band recording and you know make sure everybody gets fed at the right time and the breaks come at the right time, etc. Just being being able to have someone who can keep an eye on the clock uh, and be like, all right, time for lunch, uh, is incredibly valuable. Sure. Well, I, 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 there's a couple of things I mentioned. I, I didn't notice that Alan produced your album. Alan was a guest on my show. Great. Oh, probably two, three months ago. And it was through Alan that I, I, uh, I was, uh, because I noticed he played on uh, GA's uh, new uh, uh, album. And so I contacted her about interviewing. And then when I saw that you produced it, that's how I contacted you. So there's this interesting link, but Alan's a great guy. He and I had a conversation, oh my gosh, that we went on and on for an hour and 45 minutes, I think. I, I didn't use all of that for the podcast, but but you know, you get two musicians and two college professors together and you know, yeah. And uh but what a great guy, and he had great thoughts on uh, on, on on music as well. Uh, the other that uh, there was another point that uh, I was thinking of that you made that uh, was oh about the role of the producer. Uh, I could agree with you more. I remember uh, an album that I recorded on. Oh, it's probably been almost twenty years ago now. It was a big band album. We did all the ensemble and rhythm section tracks first. Then we went and we did the improvised solos on a separate session. So I was in to do my improvised solo on one of the charts. And it was just, you know, it was just me, microphone, the stool I was sitting on. It was all that was in the studio. And then it was the producer and the recording engineer in the booth. 
And so I did three takes. And so the producer came back and said, well, what do you think of which take do you like the best? And I had my input. And I, so I mm -hmm. said, well, what take did you like the best? And he had his input. And the engineer said, what do you guys think of this? And he, of course, it was all digital. And it was no. the, the second half of the uh, third take and the first half of the second take or something like that. Right. And he glued them together because it was all right. digital. You know how that works. And that's sure. what went on the album. But it was uh, it was such a great thing that you're right about that objective external set of ears that you can trust because you know that person is a musician and has a high level of musicality. That's probably why you're getting these calls to produce because I find your music for big band extremely sophisticated, very original. You use a wide palette of sounds and I, I really love your music. So when you write an original piece, what usually is what comes to mind first? Is it a melody, a rhythmic idea, a particular set of chord changes? Uh, you mentioned about starting with lyrics when you were writing songs or a particular mood. Just what is it for you, Darcy, that you start with usually? It, it can be any of those things. You okay. Know? Um, the, it, it really just, you might happen upon a particular rhythm or a particular polyrhythm or kind of a, a clave or a folkloric thing that, that is interesting and you want to explore further. Um, you might start with uh, a particular pitch aggregate, um, like the, you know, all interval tetrachord or something like that, or you might have uh, a melody in mind. Uh, you know, Brookmeyer used to uh, give all of us coming in, the first assignment he would give us is to write a white note melody. You know, you have just the major scale from middle C to the C above and 4-4, four, four, the medium tempo, write something that has, you know, coherent beginning, middle and end. Then that goes on for, uh, you know, a decent amount of time, at least 64 bars or so. And that is very, it's an excellent exercise. And it's something that I continue to give to, to many of my students um, at all levels, whether they're just new to composition or, or they're very experienced composers, being able to, to limit your choices in that way is, is very interesting. And it's very revealing of, oh, geez, what do you, what do you think a melody is? And seeing all of the different perspectives and there are you know, infinite possibilities just in that C major scale and that just in that one octave with the C pedal down below you know it's always different it's always uh incredibly varied and um if you're stuck that's not a bad place to start and that's you know uh, uh Maria Schneider also studied with Bob Bruckmeyer and you know I can kind of hear it there there's certain pieces of hers of like I bet that started as a white note exercise you know <laughs> and um sometimes you you start going in that direction there's a piece um that I I wrote a few years ago called winged beasts uh that's not recorded yet but uh that I was working on this you know uh, I was actually at a um an artist retreat in Italy so I, I was like all right um Got myself all set up here and i'm going to start with the white note exercise just to kind of get the juices flowing 
it's good to have a task that is is something definite it's very difficult to to sit down in front of the piano or to sit down in front of a, a blank piece of manuscript paper or a blank finale file and be okay right you know you need you need a task you need to set yourself a task you need to give yourself limitations and so the white note exercise is very very limited very clear and narrow set of limitations so i started there i started writing and then um what actually emerged from that was something completely different and i i kind of went down this rabbit hole of um starting there and then messing around with some some uh rhythms in 12 8 and then um, somehow it, it ended up doing a, a, a little detour into Bartok's fifth string quartet and then some of the rhythms being used there, like all, you know, you never know where things are going to go. You just, when you start and you have a little glimmer of an idea, it's just all about listening to what that idea is telling you about what it wants to be. And, you know, all of these unexpected sources come into play and you can't really plan it so much. I mean, you can have an architecture. It's good to try to have an architecture. It's good to have a plan, but then sometimes that that plan gets abandoned as the, the piece tells you that it wants to go in a different direction. Mm -hmm. I remember there's mm -hmm. a, another piece that I, I wrote um, uh, that ended up being a, a tribute to the, the great drummer from the band, Levon Helm. And uh, it actually started out with me trying to write a tribute to Dave Brubeck, and that just didn't work. And it ended up <laughs> going in this country swing direction. So uh, it, ended up, it ended up being uh, this, 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 you know, waltz for Levon Helm. Oh, that's amazing! Amazing. You never know where your, uh, your, your. You never know when your muse is going to spew, and you never know in what direction. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably true. But, uh, you know, um, you probably have ideas that are floating around in your head almost all the time. Do you keep a, a, a sketchbook either uh, electronically or actually physically, uh, you know, like, like the old style uh, staff paper sketchbook with ideas of heads? or vamps or other musical ideas that you could draw upon later when you write a, a full composition? I mean, it, it's both, I, I have finale files and then I have some handwritten things in a, in a little Moleskine okay. notebook. So you both. just, yeah, you keep, you're just like Beethoven. You get an idea, you write it down and then later you'll draw upon it. Sure, I think that's Or great. not, you know, it's yeah. it's, it's all there. It's part sure. of the, the the menu of possibilities. Yeah, well, I have talked to some composers that don't. I mean, they, they just, they take a piece and it's just totally an organic process from beginning to end. And so everybody's different. Uh, you've talked a lot of really great ideas from your teachers and also what you've relayed to your students. Do you have any tips for young aspiring musicians who might be listening? I think the most important thing uh, is to carve out some time to just really listen in a distraction-free environment. I think the, the, the ability to access any music at any time, practically, that, you know, young people now have, thanks to streaming services, it's overwhelming. 
and it can lead to because of course you're curious and you want to hear everything that's out there it, it can lead to not spending enough time really deeply studying one piece mm -hmm. uh, because you know you you you're curious and you want to hear everything that's out there and you want to hear, you know, you have all of these possibilities. And for, you know, I'm probably the, the last generation, you know, the CD generation that uh, bought music and didn't have access to this unlimited library. Uh, you know, so the, the pre Napster generation. And so there, there, there was, it was a different world where you had your Walkman or your Discman and you had your limited selection of tapes or, or CDs. And so just by necessity, you would listen to the same record over, over and over and, and over and over right. and over again. And each time you would hear something different. Uh, and that, that process really, it, it teaches you how to listen. Um, was a, a trombone player in Vancouver where I grew up, Hugh Fraser, who, you know, he would tell young students coming into his workshops, so like listen to Mingus Aum mm -hmm. and listen to it this way. Do one pass where you're just listening to the compositions themselves. Do one pass where you're listening for the soloist. Do one pass where you're listening to Mingus's bass lines all the way through. Do one pass where you're listening to what Danny Richmond plays on drums all the way through. Like, you know, uh, that those kinds of things of like just really focusing in on on one player and really trying to figure out, okay, so what what is happening here? Like, what are the drums doing? What is Mingus doing as the bass line? Like, how how do these compositions work? Like. All of that can only really be revealed through repeated, focused, attentive listening. And there, there are just so many distractions out there. And there's, there's such a temptation to, to listen widely and not deeply. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think it's just, it's really important for young people to have that experience of, of listening deeply and making themselves uh, a project of it, of carving out time of, you know, putting the phone into airplane mode and just really taking whatever time you have available, whether it's five minutes or, you know, half an hour or three hours or whatever, whatever you can do, whatever you can carve out set aside the time to listen and listen repeatedly and try to get try to absorb as much of the language as you can mm -hmm. there there's value in immersion and just listening broadly and listening to a lot of different things certainly but at a certain point you also have to really get in there and and analyze mm -hmm. and transcribe and figure out what is going on on a, on a really deep level like if you want to understand a tune like lush life 
you have to listen to Billy Strayhorn's recording of it. And you have to transcribe all of his piano voicings and you have to go in and check out the voice leading and figure out like, you know, if you're just looking at a lead sheet of it, it will never make any sense. You have to go deep and um, and also like most of the lead sheets are wrong and a lot of the recorded versions other than Billy Strayhorn are incorrect. You know, you have to go to the source and you have to like just really take the time to listen to where all of those voices are going. And then the secrets are going to reveal themselves to you and you'll get more out of that than you will of out of listening superficially to a lot of different things like pick one thing that you really love and do an actual focused deep dive on it. that that's my biggest piece of advice amen i'm right there with you because that's, that's what i would teach my my students in in my jazz history or music preach or any of my gen ed fine arts courses most people most lay people don't listen to music we take a tone bath because we'll have the music on while we're doing something else. And what that's what I tried to teach my students is how to listen to music, really listen to music and what to listen for. And I think you're, you're spot on with that because uh, it takes effort. It really takes effort to appreciate art. And with music being a, an aural art form, if we're listening to a recording, you're absolutely right. It takes effort and concentration to focus on the bass or on the drums or on the, you know, a, a particular instrument rather than just, you know, enjoying the totality of the, uh, the composition. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that other part of it is work and it is work that reaps untold benefits. I agree 100% with you. Thank you so much for that advice. That's just awesome. Uh, something else I want to move to. Tell us about the challenges of maintaining a professional big band in New York City, even before COVID-19. Well, you know, it's like the old uh, joke about uh, how do you make a million dollars playing jazz? You start with 10 million. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> heard that so, one before yeah the you know the the big band habit is is an expensive one and um so i i, I support it any way i can i you know i teach at three different schools i also teach privately um i'm fortunate enough to have uh, some commissioned work uh, and some guest work with other ensembles and uh, you know i was recently uh in tulsa oklahoma as a judge for the essentially Ellington competition this year, oh, yeah. uh, which is about the first time doing that. And that was a really fantastic experience. And, um, you know, all of those little pieces of the puzzle that you put together, you know, you kind of assemble uh, a little little ball of, of funds, and then that ball just gets funneled into the big band whenever a secret society uh, is, is going on, you know, into the studio or uh, out on the road. Um, and it, 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 it's always been like that. One of the, the, the many comforting and reassuring things to learn about uh, Duke Ellington and his career is that he always struggled to keep his big band together. He always struggled to pay um, Johnny Hodges and Paul Gonzalez and everyone to, to pay them what they were worth and to, uh, to try to 
string together enough dates so that he wouldn't lose his shirt completely when he was taking the band on the road. And it was all the, the money coming in from his publishing, from his hit songs that yeah. allowed him to, to finance his own personal big band habit. It's just, it, it is a, a, a thoroughly unreasonable way to make music. Yeah, it's not a way to get rich, that's for sure. But it's something that once it gets onto your skin, you it just won't let go. I mean, I love big band music. And uh, I guess I've been fortunate that I spent my career in higher education, which, you know, gave me a regular salary and a, and a, and a good health plan. And I could experience uh, big band uh, vicariously through my students because we did have we did have jazz ensemble at the university and that was that was good and then what playing that I've done here in the in the area uh, so that kind of feeds my monster I've never really written or arranged for big band so I, I haven't experienced that but that leads me to my next question uh, um, you you, you mentioned about secret society uh, are you uh, you currently writing any new material for that band and are you uh and, and can you give us any kind of sneak preview of what uh we might hear on a future recording or a live show when those start up again yeah that's a uh a, an open question as to uh <laughs> when when uh i'll be able to take secret society back into the recording studio sure it is um i think it's uh, it's a, a recovery process for for everyone. Just think about you know, the past year and a half. No one's played in a big band, and those those skills are uh, you know they need to be maintained. And uh, if if you can't be in a room with people and and making music together as a big band and, and working on, you know, blend and intonation and cohesive sound, just realistically, it's going to take a minute for all of that to come back. Sure. Um, and so I'll, I'll know more once, uh, you know, we're fully reopened and, and we're able to perform and, and rehearse uh, in the ways that, uh, that we need to be able to perform and rehearse. We had a a recording scheduled for last summer and obviously that that had to be canceled and um we'll we'll put it on the books again uh as, when i know that the time is right but okay recording a big band is is such a, a a massive endeavor i'm not in a huge hurry to to go and and to try and and reschedule it right away you know like i could you know <laughs> Get everybody on the phone and try and book it tomorrow but i just i really want us to as a band get back to a point where i'm i know that the music is going to be documented in the best possible way because exactly. recordings are forever so <laughs> um there there is going to be and i hope everyone will bear with us uh through this there is going to be a process of um all of all of us as as musicians um getting ourselves back up to to speed uh, as it were and i think one of the great things about um the return to live music is uh how nurturing it is for for everybody and uh listeners are, um are really happy to have that experience again and you know having 
missed it for so long. It, you know, speaking for myself as a listener, it's just so every every time now that I'm I'm out and I'm hearing live music, it's a it's a blessing, and I try not to forget that. So as we you know as everything builds back, uh, we'll we'll get there. There will there will be another Secret Society album, um, okay. but it it's going to take a little bit of time for for the uh, when the time is right i'll know and then i'll, sure. I'll book it but, but you have to do i would i don't want to do anything prematurely at this point no i agree i think that's probably smart but you do have an album's worth of new charts ready to go oh i have probably four <laughs> okay uh, darcy i've asked this question of every jazz musician i've interviewed thus far and i'm going to ask you as well what is it that makes jazz unique from other types of music well um you know, jazz is uh, really at the core of the Black American experience here, and it it is the 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 culmination of so many different musical and cultural and and social trends in America. You know, the music could only have been created here, and it could only have come out of um, the black community in in the in the United States, and it is you know it's Black America's gift to great gift to the world of having such a, a, an incredible synthesis of music from Africa and music from the Caribbean and you know uh, the black traditions in America and um, the the cultural collisions that happened as as a result of the black american experience all of these combined in this this really potent brew and and one of the exciting things about jazz is that very early in the emergence of this music it's documented you know it just so happened that the 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 emergence of jazz and the emergence of the recording era aligned and so you can hear the, the music being developed in in real time you can hear you know one of the great examples that i always play for my big band class are the different versions of king porter stomp from the fletcher henderson band you mm -hmm. know the 28 version and the 31 version and 32 version and then you know his arrangement for Benny Goodman and the 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 way and of course you know it comes from Jelly Roll Morton one of the original uh, originators of of the music there's so much history bound up in just the Fletcher Henderson band's recordings and his arrangements of that one tune and being able to to just hear the 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 difference between 1928 and 1931 is like, you know, it's like uh, an entire century of musical development in three years. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that's just really exciting about it. And, and the, you can, you can hear the swing language emerging and the, the going from kind of a, a more ragtime and early New Orleans influenced approach to then 
Louis Armstrong coming on the scene and everyone being so influenced by that and trying to put Louis Armstrong on their horns and then, you know, Walter Page and Joe Jones in Kansas City sort of laying down that template and and all the all of these these things like what kind of makes it exciting is not just the result which is glorious and it you know took all of America by storm and was this incredibly popular and sophisticated and joyous and heart-swinging dance music and you know you it's very easy to put yourself in the position of someone in in 1935 hearing swing for the first time and being like oh my god this is so incredibly powerful the rhythm is so powerful and that process leading up to that point is documented pretty well and we can go back and trace it and listen to it and, and hear the difference and feel the difference deep in our bones you know um i keep coming back to brookmeyer but he talks about his experience seeing the kansas city band because uh, he he grew up uh in missouri and seeing the the kansas city band uh, seeing uh the count basie band for the first time uh as a nine-year-old and how the band gave him his first full body thrill and that that full body thrill that's that's what jazz is all about and mm. that's what we we keep trying to create new versions of that new versions of music that is going to give some nine-year-old kid his first full body thrill yeah i agree with you i think i think what i think you're saying just as just to see if i'm i'm on on target here is that jazz is both visceral and intellectual yeah i mean i don't even know that i would put a a, a dividing line yeah uh, between okay those, between those two things necessarily yeah okay because um, the brain is an organ too sure yes i mean it's all yeah. it's all happening in the brain you know that the yeah. brain is part of that full body thrill that's how we experience yeah. it right sure no i i think i think you're spot on that's a great that's a great description i've had several different ones but i really like i like that one darcy is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that i have not asked you about no i can't think of anything off the top of my head craig we covered a lot of ground and uh, thank well, you so much for inviting me to be on this podcast you bet well I, I i try to be thorough and uh I always always add that last question because I I know that even despite my efforts I can uh, I I can miss something. But Darcy, thank you for taking time to talk with me today, and all the best with what I'm sure will be a continued successful musical future. Thanks so much, Craig. All the best to you. For those of you who have been following my discovery composer of the week for the past month, may have noticed that for the past four weeks, I have devoted my Discovery Composer of the Week segment to composers named Fontana. Today, I break with that tradition, and instead of a composer, I want to focus on another Fontana whom I have admired, jazz trombonist Carl Fontana. Carl Fontana was one of the most talented and innovative trombonists of his generation. He became known as a lyrical, technically brilliant, and inventive soloist. His fluid style was quite different from the bebop staccato of his great contemporaries, such as J.J. Johnson and Frank Rossellino. 
despite having established himself as one of the most talented and innovative trombonists of his generation, Fontana did not record an album as a leader until the 1985 release of The Great Fontana, in which he leads a quintet featuring longtime associate Al Cohn on tenor sax, Ray Drummond on bass, Richard Wyans on piano, and Akira Tana on drums. I Thought About You is one track from the album that shows Fontana's trademark taste and skill on a standard that he performed frequently throughout his career. Here in my show notes is a YouTube link of Carl performing I Thought About You. Fontana was also greatly admired for his mastery of the doodle-tonguing technique, a technique he developed for playing rapid-fire passages with technical brilliance in double-time phrasing. This skill allowed Fontana to smoothly execute runs of notes at speeds many had not previously considered possible to achieve on a slide trombone. His first break into the professional jazz scene came in 1951, when he was hired to stand in for one of Woody Herman's regular trombonists, Irby Green. Herman was so impressed with Fontana, particularly his improvisational skills, that when Green returned, Herman kept Fontana on as a permanent member of the band. I don't think I ever heard Carl play a bad solo, Scott Whitfield maintains. He definitely did not have a big ego, and he did not have a star trip going on. He was just a good guy who enjoyed life and enjoyed going through life in a relaxed fashion. That was Carl Fontana, a genuine person and a trombonist trombonist. My own personal privilege of hearing Carl Fontana live was in 1979 while I was in Las Vegas. He was playing in a little club called the Tender Trap with a quartet. To the best of my memory, he opened with Surrey with the fringe on top and blew me away with his soloing. In my show notes, I include another link to a YouTube video of Carl performing Love Walked In with the Metropole Orchestra. That wraps episode number 37. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I will be interviewing Vancouver, British Columbia-based blues singer, songwriter, and harp player extraordinaire, Harp Dog Brown. Other upcoming interviews include Milwaukee-based drummer extraordinaire Dave Bayless, Americana singer-songwriter Ro Myra, North Carolina-based singer-songwriter Miles Travitz, and Los Angeles-based baritone saxophonist and studio musician Terry Landry. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at 
uwm.edu. So, until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.